So, this morning, as I was just saying, uh, we are going to be in chapter 29 of the Second London Baptist Confession. So if you have your confessions, it's going to be chapter 29. If you don't have your confessions, I put it on uh, the, the fill-in-the-blank sheet. So you should have it anyways, regardless, uh, if you have one of these things. If you don't have one of these yet... Notice what I said, if you don't have one of these yet, not if you lost it, uh, but if you never got one, we've got a few up here, so come grab it after Sunday school. Okay, so can I get four readers um, this morning for our um, different paragraphs? So, anybody willing to be a reader this morning? Paragraph one. I will. Well, thank you. All right, you can take paragraph one. Meine Freundin back there can take paragraph two, uh, paragraph three, anybody else paragraph four. It's a really long one, paragraph four, Emma. So, yeah, yeah. I can okay. tell. Yeah. All right, so uh, in order, please. All right. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins, and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Wonderful. Thank you. Paragraph 2. Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in, and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only prosperous subjects of this ordinance. Thank you. The outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, where the party is to be baptized. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for the participation. We're going to have more, obviously, as we start reading through some of the scriptures that back this up. But this morning, we are going to see what is the fundamental movement away from the Westminster and the Savoy Confessions. So we will recall, as we've been walking through this confession, uh, is that it is uh, trying its best to be in line with the Reformed faith. The Second London Baptist Confession is saying, hey, we're Reformed too. We believe in the Reformed doctrines. We just have some differences. And this is really where the, the hammer drops on the differences. Uh, there, there is plenty to be discussed this morning, and hopefully uh, we can do that. So we're going to seek to answer three questions this morning. The first one is, what is baptism? The second question is going to be, who are the proper subjects of baptism? And the third one is, how do we actually do baptism? Okay, so that is what we're seeking to, to accomplish this morning. And I believe the confession helps us do that really well. So, pop quiz, hot shot, nobody look at your notes. Last week, Pastor Joel gave us the definition of ordinance. Who wants to take a shot at ordinance? Anybody? Ronnie? I mean, anybody? No, I'm kidding. Anybody? Come on. If you look at my footnotes, I'm really, I'm, I'm upset that nobody knows ordinance right now. What? Justin? Go for it, buddy. Isn't it like a, maybe like a guideline of rules set by the person who is giving it to the recipient? Okay. Yeah, good. A rule that's been given to a recipient I like that. Guideline, rule. 
Um, you're a Catholic, it's a sacrament. Everybody else is scoreless. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, so there's some clarification, and we're going to dive into that a little bit, not too deeply. What? What? No. Well, he's, he's, he's actually, he's a little right, and he's popping off. So it's, it's both. I just want to write it down to Right, it's, it's, a, it's a both and. So, so let me do this. I actually just stole this from Joel's um, last week, his Sunday school. So sorry, Joel. Um, he's in here so he can hear me say this. Uh, ordinance is a rule established by authority. A permanent rule of action, an ordinance may be a law or statute of sovereign power. So when we are thinking of this, your first blank, by the way, is what is baptism? Uh, if you haven't written that one down yet. Um, so what we're going to look at this morning is this ordinance of baptism. I think another way to help us understand this ordinance, uh, another way of using uh, maybe a different theological term would be positive law. So when we think of positive laws... Those are laws that are added to the natural or moral law. They are dependent upon the will of God. Subsequent positive laws are spread throughout the Old and New Testaments. Positive laws can be abrogated or done away with for various reasons. They are not necessarily universal or perpetual. Some obvious examples of positive law in the Old Testament are circumcision and the laws of sacrifice. Two New Testament illustrations of positive law are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, neither circumcision, sacrifices, baptism, nor the Lord's Supper are universal or perpetual. That means that we're not doing... What I'm trying to help us see is that the Lord's Supper and baptism are positive laws given to us as a means for the New Testament, right? Baptism, sure, was... um, present in the old testament it just wasn't done the same way it will obviously wasn't done in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit okay so we have this idea then of what baptism is it's an ordinance or a positive law uh, positive law it's also your next blank a sign baptism is a sign what do you guys think baptism is a sign of You, you read the confession. Good job. Death, burial, and resurrection. Very good. What else? Is there anything else? Remission of sin. Man, you're just getting star, star student credit this morning. Okay, well, let's do this. Let's, let's go to our Bibles. Romans 6, 3 through 5. Let me get a reading. Ronnie, okay, yeah, hold, hold, uh, Colossians 2.12, Dennis, thank you, uh, Galatians 3.27, Edgar, all right, let's have it. Romans 6, 3-5, or are, or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. So 
for we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death. We will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Thanks, Steve. Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Okay. So we are seeing that baptism is a sign. Okay. Um, we didn't somehow uh, mysteriously get thrown all the way back into history, into the tomb with Jesus. We weren't buried with Jesus, right? We weren't um, resurrected on that day when Jesus resurrected. We didn't ascend uh, to the right hand of God where Jesus is right now sitting. So it's a sign. It's helping us understand that we are sealed to Christ, right? But it's helping us to see kind of the future of it. It's a, it's a sign of whose we are. So let's go through some of the, the details of this fellowship. So when you read baptism is an ordinance, we, we've described what an ordinance is already, and that ordinance was ordained by Jesus Christ himself. So we're understanding, okay, this is a New Testament ordinance that Christ has given us to follow for the person who would be baptized. It is a sign, and the sign is a sign of fellowship. Okay, so what are we fellowshipping with Christ in? And these are the things that we just read from scripture. We're fellowshipping in his death and resurrection. In his death and resurrection. We are fellowshipping in the fact that we were engrafted into him. We were engrafted into Christ. Good morning, guys. There's always seats in the front row. There are always seats in the front row ready for people. Good to have you two this morning. So we see this fellowship is in the death and resurrection of Christ. This is that sign. Uh, it's also that we've been engrafted into Christ. I love that explanation in the confession. That this is saying, look, this is somebody that Christ from the foundation of the earth has engrafted into him to be one of his. It's a beautiful sign, friends, when we see someone baptized. It's the fellowship in remission of sins. Your third blank. Fellowship in the remission of sins. Now, this is going to be good for us as we continue, because the question is, does baptism actually wash away your sins, or was that already done? And so as we keep going, we're going to talk about that. And, and I'll say, I'm, I'm already showing you my hand because I have it under a sign. I think it's a sign of our sins being washed away. It's not the act that washes away our sin. Why do you guys think that would be important? Making a distinction like that. Because you could just be baptized and be you know, immersed in the water. And that, you know, it doesn't do anything physically to us. It's, it's in our soul and our spirit. Okay. Okay, so it can, it can yeah, be misunderstood if you just get baptized and think that that actually did the work, but it's actually a, a sign of what God's been doing in your, in your soul. Emma, did you have anything to add to that? I was just thinking that seems like a work that the person would do instead of just relying on the work that Christ has done. Hmm, okay, good. Yeah, I think, I think both of those things 
Uh, we're going to talk about baptismal regeneration, but I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so good stuff. I'm glad our noodles are working. Uh, they're, they're moving this morning. You've had a little bit of coffee. So number two, or number two, the last one that we have fellowship in is going to be newness of life. Fellowship and newness of life. So this sign is showing forth to all that see the baptism and the, per, the party to be baptized that they have fellowship in Christ's death and resurrection, that they have fellowship by being engrafted into Christ, that they have fellowship in Christ because Christ has washed away their sin, and they have fellowship in the fact that they are called to live in newness of life by the help of Christ. So we have what is baptism. It's an ordinance and it is a sign for the person being baptized. So, number two, again, this is where we're seeing our difference with the Westminster, which we love here. And if you haven't heard me say three million times, let me do three million and one. I love Presbyterians. I think they're amazing. I have lots of their books. Um, they uh, help me out so much in study, but we have a difference here. And that's okay. It's okay to give a positive backing for what our, our difference is. And that's why we are studying the Second London Baptist Confession because of this difference. So what is it? Question number two that we seek to answer. Who are the proper subjects of baptism? And then again, we come to this word right in paragraph two. Those who do actually profess. So... We need, to, we need help in understanding what does the confession mean by professing, okay? We actually talked about this a few weeks ago when I was up here teaching Sunday school uh, for a different subject, but when we think about profession, we're going to think of an act of openly declaring or publicly claiming a belief, faith, or opinion. So your blanks are an act of openly declaring or publicly claiming a belief, faith, or opinion. All right, so let's run through some scripture here. Um, let me get some readers for Romans 10, 9 through 13. Uh, Mark 16, 15 through 16. Uh, and then Acts 8, 36 and 37, only for someone, and I'll talk to you about why, only for someone who has an NASB or a King James for Acts 8. I don't know if the LSB is using the same manuscript. Is there a verse 37 and 8? Okay, well then we'll see if Edgar has it, and if not, we'll, we'll ask somebody else. So hold off on Acts 30, or 8, 38. Um, anybody else? Romans 10, 9 through 13. See ya, Okay, cool. Um, hey, I love my, my youth peeps, and I have no uh, shame in, in shouting them out. All right, so Mark 16, 15, and 16. Okay, good. Um, all right, so I think we have them all. Actually, we have Acts 2 as well, 37 through 41. A youth is like, please let me raise my hand so Andrew can talk in that squeaky voice again. Anybody else? Acts 2? Okay, all right, wow. Come on, adults, where are you at? All the youth are raising their hands in here. Okay, so let's start in Romans 10, 9 through 13. Now, again, remember what we're looking for openly declaring and publicly claiming, right? Okay. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be 
heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Thank you. Mark 16, 15 through 16. Who was that? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, please. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Thank you. Let's do Acts 2, 37 through 41 first, and then we'll jump back to Acts 8, 36 and 37. Now, when they heard this, uh, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness to his plan and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thank you. All right, uh, Edgar, if you would, when you're going to read this, read 36, um, let's see, through 39. And as they went along, to the, along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went, went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuchs, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Okay, so some of your Bibles, when you read that, were like, what? That verse wasn't there. Like, why does your Bible have that magical verse and mine doesn't, right? And so I just wanted really quickly to talk about a gigantic subject of textual criticism. So I want you to see that there have been manuscripts all throughout history, uh, depending on what the editors of which Bible are using, that will either have this verse come out in your Bible or it won't. And so there are manuscripts throughout history that have this verse... Included. I think it started way back in about the 7th century when they started discovering manuscripts from the 7th century that this verse was in there. But then when they were going even further back, they started to see, oh, it's not necessarily always there. So there were kind of two different traditions that branched off from here that said, oh, this verse was in there. Oh, this verse wasn't. But friends, this is what I wanted to bring to your attention. Whether that verse is in there or not doesn't actually change the way we view baptism or view believing in Christ. Whether uh, we don't have that verse because of textual criticism where some manuscripts added that verse or, or didn't have it. Um, if we read this verse, we still see the fact that Philip opened his mouth beginning with this scripture. He told him about the good news of Jesus. So he shared the gospel with the eunuch. The eunuch heard the gospel and he says, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
So even if you didn't have the, the next part that says you have to do this, we see that they commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, we trust that Philip, if he's able to explain the gospel to the eunuch, and we trust that Philip is one of the disciples that's going out and making more disciples, we understand that he knew what he was doing. He knew what it meant for someone to confess Christ. So even though we don't see the eunuch's confession there, we still understand that Philip understood what the eunuch actually was able to believe and that he baptized him. So just wanted to give you a taste of textual criticism and see it's okay that some of our Bibles don't have it. And the reason why I wasn't just trying to be like, let's talk about textual criticism today, my favorite thing. Um, It's because the confession actually uses that as a proof text. And so if you were to go back and say, let me read through the proof text of this confession, and you read that one and you're like, wait, that's not right. Well, remember the Bible that they were using during that time was the King James, right? That was the Bible that they were using. So that verse was very much a part of that Bible. So anyways, just, just a history and textual criticism lesson. I am by no means a expert in textual criticism. Everybody go to Dennis Fowler for that. No, I'm kidding. I'm just throwing him under the bus. Um, but I'm, I am definitely able to sit back and talk about it more or answer any questions a little bit later here at the end. So let's talk about what the confession says that we need to openly declare um, or publicly claim. Okay. So number one, it is repentance. That's your first blank on, I think, page two. That to be one of these proper subjects, you need to be able to repent of your sins. Number two, it would be faith in Christ. So we're declaring repentance of our sins to faith in Christ. Obviously, if we are going to declare, um, if we are going to be baptized, if you've heard us baptize anybody, that's one of the questions, right? Is Jesus now your Lord and Savior? Do you, um, I can't remember it off the top of my head, Joel, about uh, do you now trust? Yes, but what do we say about you're no longer, what? Renounce, yeah, renounce Satan and all of his ways. Um, So we are trying to have that person who's in the baptismal, um, ready to be baptized, declare their repentance of their sin, um, repentance under Christ, their faith in Christ, and then the lordship of Christ, which would be number three, your obedience to Christ. So it's repentance, number one, faith in Christ, number two, and obedience to Christ to Christ. That is the ability to publicly declare and claim a belief. And so as the um, Baptists, the particular Baptists of the 17th century were trying to explain their difference from uh, the Westminster Confession and the Savoy, they were saying the only proper subjects by which we understand the New Testament and the Old is going to be those who profess Christ. So what we see then is not just um, a difference between the Presbyterians, but a difference between the Catholics. So we see this idea of sacramentalists. And the sacramentalists were those that believed in baptismal regeneration, meaning that baptism is the act which saves you. 
And this is the historic Catholic view. So the Baptists were saying, listen, we love that Reformed theology. We really appreciate you guys. We want to be a part of this community. But we see something here that we don't agree with. We don't agree with the baptism of infants. So what are the two groups? What are the two groups called? Does anybody know the, the, the not the biblical, but the theological terms that we use for the two? Pado and credo, right? So what's pado? Infant or children, young children, right? Baptism, okay. And then what's the other one? Believer's baptism. Credo, it's a confession. We confess our belief. And so the Baptists were clearly saying, we are credo. You must be able to declare and publicly claim a belief. So the doctrine, this is from Sam Waldron, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration logically and ethically requires infant baptism. At the time of the Reformation, those who held this doctrine often defended infant baptism on the grounds of church tradition. Because if you look at church tradition for a long time, this was the means of baptism. However, you can go to the New Testament and see that it clearly was confessional. Now, we can talk about um, the, the jailer and Lydia and other people, uh, which I, I'll take questions here in a minute on, on all of those things. But what we see is that people who confess were people who were baptized. Even in church history, you can look back at an old church historical document called the Didache, um, which was like a church manual to the, to the uh, fathers that actually talked about credo baptism. So those that would say, oh, you... You believers, baptism people, you just, you're so cute. You just came around uh, in, in the time of the Second London Baptist Confession. Let me just pinch your cheek. Um, I would say, no, no, no. Hold the horses there, bud. Okay? I love you guys, but no, I don't, I don't think that's right. All right, so I'm, I'm promising that we can get to questions, so I'm going to move through paragraphs three and four. So... How is one baptized is the next question. So the first question, what is baptism? It's an ordinance, it's a sign. Um, who is the proper subject of baptism? Those that can publicly declare and claim their repentance, uh, faith in and obedience to Christ. Um, and then how is one baptized? If I didn't offend anyone yet, don't worry, here it comes. Um, this is what the Baptists saw very clearly. How is one baptized? Christ ordained that one being baptized would be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So somebody read for us Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Should be pretty familiar for most of us. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So we see in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, the fact that people were to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And another thing that I'll just point out is that Matthew 28 is talking about go therefore and make disciples. So the disciples are the ones who are to be baptized. I think that's really clear from Matthew 28. Disciples alone are to be baptized. 
Okay, so baptism then, remember, a symbol, symbolizes joining oneself into a covenant with the one's name in which he is being baptized. Okay, so when we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we are saying we are being engrafted into that. That is where our fellowship resides. That is who we belong to. That is the sign in which we are connecting ourselves with. Number two, so how is one to be baptized? By immersion. Is your blank. By immersion or dipping of the person in the water. Okay, so I think it's helpful here to notice the Greek word that's used for baptism. And if you've been in a Baptist church one day in your whole life, you've probably heard this word and probably heard somebody try to explain it. It's baptizo. Okay, this is the verb, which means to plunge, dip, wash, immerse, baptize, plunge, dip, wash, immerse, baptize. I think it's also interesting when we look at the New Testament, when someone is being baptized, the language of them coming up out of the water is being used. So when we look at John three twenty three, um, which is talking about the, the baptism of Jesus. Let me just go there for a second. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming to be baptized. Okay, so that's not Jesus's baptism there that's being talked about, but that is being talked about the baptism of other believers having much water. Let me go to Matthew three sixteen, which is what I meant to go to in the first place. Isn't that great? You guys have heard me do that many a times. All right, so Matthew 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus came up out from the water. If he came up out of the water, it only makes sense that he went down into the water. Now, another thing that I want to point out is that in Greek literature, using the word baptizo, this was actually also a symbol of someone being submerged into death. We read in Romans, right, 6, that we were buried with him and then we were raised with him. This symbol of someone being baptized. In fact, when they were talking about seafaring things that were happening with boats and fights and epics in the Greek, they would say that boat was baptized when it was sunk into the ocean. So they would use baptism as the meaning of immersion. So I've got a couple quotes here from uh, Sam Waldron and then from... Uh, Charles Spurgeon. Actually, I think it's Charles Spurgeon and then uh, Sam Waldron. So this is what 
Charles Spurgeon says um, in, on baptism. He wrote this. Baptism is, baptism is, we doubt not, immersion. This is taught by all Greek usage of the terms chosen by the spirit of inspiration to designate this action. It is admitted by almost every learned paedo-baptist that until the time of Christ, the word baptizo had no other meaning. It required that, quote, the element encompasses its object. Nor does the use of this word by the heathen or Christian Greeks in the ages immediately succeeding apostolic times encourage the idea of a changed import adopted by inspired penmen, which some vainly imagined. So that's very... Spurgeon-esque um, quote. And then here's, here's Sam Waldron. He says, Baptism literally means to immerse and figuratively means to overwhelm. Baptism points to our being completely and spiritually immersed into Christ and overwhelmed by his spirit. It points to the spiritual wealth and power we possess in Christ. Nothing less than immersion or such a pouring as literally overwhelms properly symbolizes this truth. Friends, there is much more to say on baptism, but I am expounding upon a summary of what baptism is. There are so many good resources for you out there. I have named a few in a footnote that I would suggest you go back and look at. Um, One thing I would say, if you're not a heavy reader, which... You should be, because reading is fun, although it's hard. Um, I would say there's a great podcast series right now that's coming out uh, in a podcast called Theology in Particular. Uh, And in this podcast, there is a six-podcast series on the doctrine of baptism. And it's on a doctrine of baptism that is not just proof text proven, but is a theologically rich look at the Old Testament and the import of baptism into the new. So I just want to encourage you, that's a good one to listen to. And like every time I get up here, baptism warrants its own sermon Sunday school series, right? So, I'm sorry, what was it? What did you call it? What was the series? um, It was Theology in Particular is the podcast. And right now it's a six-part series series on baptism. Really good, yes. All right, so... Uh, I am done, and I'm willing to take some questions on <laughs> baptism. Yes, Emma? Um, so you did already like, allude to this, mm-hmm. but when it does say that the jailer who believed in his household was baptized, yes. does that mean that the, like, can you explain, like, did the rest of the household believe too, and then therefore they were baptized? Right, so I would say by the the totality of scripture in the New Testament, I would say if we believe that is what it, it takes for someone to be baptized, that's how I would explain that text. I think the text itself, talking about the household or the family, um, doesn't give us the specific of the infant children that the jailer had or, or whatsoever they may have had. And so I think that argument is an argument that's used and has been used in church history. But for me, it's not giving us the specifics of who was in the household. We can do word studies until we're blue in the face on household there, right? Um, But I think that's an argument which we would say is from silence and saying that it doesn't tell us that there wasn't infants. And because we could maybe allude that there were infants, then we can prove the the doctrine of infant baptism. But that is a good one to bring up. Yes, Ted. Um, I don't believe the the Presbyterian 
them. No, puts, absolutely not. Puts them under the sign of the covenant. Yes. So it replaces circumcision. Yes, and I would ask, how does it replace circumcision? I think they would go to Colossians 2, 12, yeah. right? And they would say it would replace circumcision. And I think there's actually work to be done in explaining what is talked about by circumcision of the heart. Is that actually pointing to the continuance of circumcision, or is it pointing to the continuance of the regeneration of the heart by the Holy Spirit? And if, it, if it is the replacing of circumcision, why is it why is it not only restricted to males? Yeah, exactly. Because that's what circumcision was, and that's obviously baptism is both for male and female in the New Testament sign. Yes, Emma? So is there no covenant made then for the family of the believer in the raising up of the children in the church? Is there no covenant made for the family of the believer? You're saying for the Baptist? For any believer, like but for any person raising up children in the church, is there then not a covenant made with the church? I think there's a covenant made, but we would say the covenant made, right, is for believers in Christ. But we wouldn't say that that would then allow the household um, to then become a part of that covenant by baptism. Because what is baptism signalizing? It's signalizing, it's a sign. Let's, let's say that way, right? Of us being buried in Christ's death, in his resurrection, being engrafted to him, newness of life and remission of sins. And I would say that's not available for someone who's not confessing Christ. Well, and also, it's not consistent because then I know a lot of Presbyterian churches that then don't allow them to take part of the bread and wine. If they're inside the covenant, we are denying them something that they have been given by Christ, which is his death. Which is the celebration of his body, right? Yeah, I think I think there is. Uh, well, there are Presbyterians who would allow the partaking of that for infants. There is uh, paleo communion, um, but you're right. There are plenty who don't, and I think there is a there is an inconsistency there um, with being a part of that covenant. Now, again, this is why it gets into the importance of unpacking both baptism and next week the Lord's Supper, because in the Lord's Supper. There is the ability for us to think through what this actually means. And so for those that would do infant baptism, there is a point in time where they make a confession of faith, which then allows them to take uh, the Lord's Supper. And so I would say again, that gets taken care of when we see baptism from what the New Testament is clearly explaining to for the new covenant sign. Good, good interaction. And again... Throwing it out there. I love Presbyterians. They're awesome. Um, and, and I would gladly have a discussion with them on this sitting down over a cup of coffee or lunch. Uh, and we would have fun with each other uh, poking at that. So, All right. Any other questions on baptism, on what it is, on the proper subjects, and on uh, how we actually do it? Let me make one more caveat. As the confession here in paragraph four says, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. I want you to hear that the second London Baptist tradition, the particular Baptists were not landmark Baptists. 
And when I say landmark Baptists, I would say that there are Baptists that say, only if you do this, we are the only true church. And all other churches are not the true church. Uh, You can hear me quite clearly say this morning, uh, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters uh, and, you know, some Anglicans and whatever, you know, the whole spectrum. There are true churches in all of those churches. If they are preaching the word and doing the sacraments now or the ordinances as well. Don't want to get in trouble. Um, But we want to say that one of us, right, is going to be right or wrong. And when we get to heaven, we're going to find out. Um, But... That doesn't mean that they are not a true church. That doesn't mean that we don't pray for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters and our Anglican brothers and sisters um, and and the gamut um, that they would continue making disciples uh, and that they would continue planting churches and and so on and so forth. However, we have a strong belief that baptism, uh, credo baptism, is what scripture is uh, unpacking for us. All right, I'm going to end it there, and uh, I would love to talk more covenantal baptism questions if you have them, or anything else on the on that uh, for a couple minutes, and then uh, we will go and go to corporate worship. So let me end in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful for your word. And as we study it, and as we study the beautiful sign of baptism, one in which we should rejoice and that we get to participate in this ordinance that you've given us. God, to you be the glory that we can be plunged into the water and that we can be pulled out and that would signify our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. And oh, how beautiful that is. And then later on this afternoon as we take the Lord's Supper and we partake in the body and the blood, we see another sign that points us to the fact that we are with Christ, that he has died for our sins, his body was broken, his blood was spilt, and how that nourishes us spiritually. Oh God, you are so good. We are so thankful that you have given us these things to to help us as we walk in this pilgrimage, to be a sign to the world about who we are and whose we are. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you.